Today's Bible reading is Luke chapter 24, the first 12 verses. It starts with the women who had come uh, with Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee, who had witnessed his burial and who were preparing the funeral spices. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away, amazed at what had happened. I uh, don't know if you have heard of Deepak Chopra, but he is an American author, as a public speaker, he's an alternative medicine advocate, uh, he's a prominent figure in the New Age movement, and through his books and his videos, he's become one of the best known and uh, wealthiest figures in alternative medicine. And he wrote about Easter, Christian Easter, and he said um, about the death and resurrection of Jesus, he said that every spiritual tradition has this idea of death and resurrection, that this is not something that is unique to Christianity. But is that true? Is it true that all spiritual traditions have this sense of death and resurrection? And if it is, then how is Christianity any different? How is our faith different? Why should we believe this version of the resurrection account and not the others? If Chopra is right, then every other religion, uh, every religion really, is just another path up the spiritual mountain, with God sort of up the top when you get there. Christianity is but one among many different options that ultimately leads to salvation. And so is he right? Well, let's have a bit of a um, uh, religion comparison lesson. In ancient Greek and Roman mythology, there were several human beings that were brought back to life by the gods. Asclepius was killed by Zeus only to become a god himself. Achilles, you know, he of the heel, uh, after being killed, was snatched from the funeral pyre by his divine mother, Thetis, and brought back to life. There were several others who had a similar sort of faith, uh, fate that, um, that bewait, uh, awaited them. In the ancient Egyptian writings, there is an allusion to the dying and the resurrection of their god Osiris. 
And of course, in the incarnation religions like Hinduism and, uh, and so forth, there is this built-in idea of returning as another creature, of being reborn, being, I guess, resurrected in that way. And so because of this, Chopra says that the Christian idea of the crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection is really just a metaphor. He says, and I quote, the symbolic language of the crucifixion is the death of the old paradigm and resurrection is a leap into a whole new way of thinking. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is really just a metaphor, a symbol, if you like, of human growth, coming to a new and deeper understanding about something or about yourself. And this idea is very attractive in today's world, you know, isn't it? We're, we're all about growth, all about becoming more than we currently are, about living our best lives now. And yet, he is dead wrong, isn't he? Deepak Chopra completely misses the point. You see, all of the other uh, religions in the world, uh, amongst all of them, Christianity is unique in its resurrection account. It is unique because the resurrection does not just apply to Christ who was risen, but it applies to us as well. And if, religion, uh, if the resurrection was simply a spiritual metaphor, then really, friends, we should shut up these doors, sell up the building and do donate the money somewhere because our faith would be hopeless. And so why is the resurrection so important? Why of all the Christian days is Easter Sunday perhaps the most significant? Why is it that of all the things we celebrate, Easter Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, is perhaps the most important? Why is it that the New Testament Christians, when they went about sharing the gospel, it is the resurrection that they stressed, not the crucifixion? Why is it that the New Testament writers wrote so many letters that we find in the New Testament? And why is it that they talk about the resurrection all the time? Why don't they stress the crucifixion as much? Well, let's look together. Our text gives us a couple of uh, lessons, two lessons of why the resurrection is important. The first is that the resurrection is important because in the resurrection, Jesus gives us a picture of what it means for us. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what lay ahead, lays ahead for everyone who believes. Now the story, as you know so far, is that Jesus had been killed. He'd been laid in the tomb and now these women go to the tomb to, um, with the spices to prepare his body. Now the spices they took are, are spices that they used to anoint the body with uh, as a way of preparing the dead for burial. But because Jesus' death was on um, the day before the Jewish Sabbath day, he had to be buried quickly. And so that didn't allow for time to properly prepare his body. And so these ladies spent the Sabbath day of rest, probably, I would say, in anguish. Some have called this Saturday, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, they've called that the Sabbath of distress for these women. And it was because on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, uh, the Jews were not allowed to do any work and they certainly were not to go and anoint the dead on a, on a Sabbath day. And so during this Sabbath of distress, the disciples, including these women, spent the day in mourning. Now I can understand that. Imagine how you would feel if that person in whom you had pinned all your hopes, in whom you had put everything that you hoped for for the future, was gone. 
The one you believed would come and deliver you had died, was dead. The one for whom you had given up everything suddenly seemed to be gone forever. It would be, it'd be devastating. It would be heartbreaking. You would not have uh, been able to show proper respect for his body either because he was buried so quickly. And so even being able to show honour and respect to him was taken away for you. Therefore you sit bound by religious law not to visit the grave of your master, but really with your heart in that grave already because that is where your saviour lay. Anyone who has ever lost someone very dear or close to them knows this feeling of loss the disciples felt. But it wasn't just loss. It was the desire to be with their master, to be, uh, to be with him, but being completely powerless to actually go to him. You see, this is what death does. It, it separates us by this un... Uh, uh, surmountable chasm, this, this deep chasm that you cannot cross to get to those whom you love. It would have been such a conflicting and confusing time. And, uh, and so as soon as they are able, as soon as the sun comes up, they go to the tomb, they want to go honour Jesus' body the way it should have been honoured. And so they bring the spices. Now friends, we can't forget that what they expected to find was a dead body. In fact, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16 verse 3 tells us they were actually worrying about how they would get into the tomb, how they would roll the stone away, how they would get past the guards that had been placed there. They went hoping to honour Jesus' body with no real hope of actually doing so. But yet they went anyway. And so as they wind their way through uh, perhaps the rocky path to the tomb, they're mourning, they're crying, they're without hope but they, they go anyway. And as they round the corner and they see the tomb, they see that the stone had been rolling away. Stone had been rolled away. Rolling? That's not a word. Uh, and so our text tells us that they are bewildered by this. They stood there wondering. This very thing that was supposed to cause them great joy is the thing that confused them. This event that would have brought them the greatest joy on earth was the very thing that they could not understand because raising from the dead is just not something that happens. But in rising from the dead, Jesus shows that he has won the battle over sin and death. He shows that he has authority over death. Not even death could hold back the overwhelming love of, of God, the one who gives life. This is the very best news they could ever have received, that anyone could ever receive, is that Jesus has risen indeed. And it is such good news because it means something for us. It's not just for the disciples of the day. It's not even just for Jesus. There is, there is joy here for us too. Because for everyone who believes in Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is a proof that one day we too will rise again. Our bodies may decay. In fact, in the history of the church, everyone else has died after Jesus' death. But because we are Jesus' children, His Spirit lives in us. 
And therefore, we too will rise from the dead. We too will, will receive these resurrection bodies and be and live with him in paradise forever. You know, Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, Paul says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, this comes from the, the world of farming. I am not a farmer. Look at these hands. Uh, but the first fruits is an indication of what the crop is going to be like. This is what I am told. When you go out and you have a look at the first fruit of your crop, what it bears, if the fruit is good, you know that you know it's plump, it's juicy, it teems with goodness or however you measure these things. If you see these good first fruits, you know that the crop is going to be good. It's going to be a good year for you. But if your first fruits are bad, yucky, prone to mold or however you measure these things, then you know that it's going to be a bad year. It's going to be a year where you struggle to make ends meet. It's going to be a year that's just going to be tough. But what the writer of the Corinthians uh, is telling us here is, look at Jesus. This is the first fruits of those who believe. All the believers are the crop. It is a good crop. This is the kind of life that is there for everyone who believes. When Jesus rises from the dead, he says, this is what people will be like. Death cannot hold them because their Lord in whom they have died was raised from the life and so they will follow him. They will rise from the dead too. We might die, our bodies may decay, but because we are God's children, because the Spirit of Christ lives within us, we too will rise from the dead one day to be with him in paradise. What hope, what joy there is for us, what love we feel for our Saviour. You see, God's wrath was truly terrible, but his love for his people is even greater. And so as the song says, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he arose. Resurrection means that we too will be resurrected. We are the crop that comes after the first fruits. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we try and find our Saviour in dead places, don't we? Like these women, we come looking for our Saviour among the dead, for the living among the dead. And so as good as the truth of the resurrection is, friends, it forces us to ask the question, where are we looking for our Saviour? What are the places of death that we go to to look for life? These idols in our lives that end up promising life but that ultimately kill us. Is it in this kind of new ageism like uh, Chopra would sell to us? Is it in the tolerance that the world preaches which is really just asking them to uh, them asking us to fully approve of every uh, action and belief people have is it in belief that every other religion is just another path up the same mountain where are you looking for your savior 
What is it that you really believe about Jesus? You see, friends, we have to ask ourselves the question, do I believe that he really physically rose from the dead? Or do I believe that the resurrection is just some sort of metaphorical spiritual resurrection? Did Jesus actually come back from the dead? Or does he just live on through his disciples' teaching? These questions matter a lot. They are the difference between life and death, literally and eternally. You see, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, if he was just another good teacher, we could follow him like people follow in the footsteps of Buddha, seeking some sort of enlightenment Jesus can bring. We could look at him like some great moral teacher, looking at him, you know, sort of uh, uh, to live out the morality that he had like uh, ancient Mahatma Gandhi. We can look to him as some sort of great prophet, as the one who, you know, who says do this so we can please God, like a kind of Christian Muhammad, if you will. This is what the world would have us believe. Jesus is just one out of the many options to choose. But don't you see, friend, that all of those options actually ultimately leads you to death? All of those options will not save us. If Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, we would be no different to the rest of the world. If we don't believe in his physical resurrection from the world, then Jesus wouldn't matter, actually. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, if, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. And then also those all who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied most of all people. The resurrection, though, is the first fruits of eternal life. And it is what we have when we believe that Jesus really physically rose. You and I are not to be pitied. People should envy us because we have eternal life. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and because he rose again on Easter Sunday. That is our fate too, if we believe. One day we will be raised with him. Just as our sinful selves have been put to death... On the cross with him, so too, as he came out of the, of the grave, out of the tomb, we too will rise with him. And we will get bodies like his. One day we will be free from every spot and stain of sin. One day we will join him for all eternity, finally, fully alive. People should envy us, not pity us. Friend, if you believe that Jesus died for your sin, that he rose from the dead, then that is your future. Because you are part of the crop of which Jesus is the first fruit. And that's the first thing we need to see this morning. The second thing we need to understand is that Jesus' resurrection calls us to witness to him. Jesus' resurrection, in a way, sets the course of the rest of our lives. Yes, he is the first fruits, and we are part of the crop, 
but that we actually have a part to play in this life, and that is to bear witness to uh, what Jesus has done. I read again from verse 8. And they remembered his words. Then returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he only saw uh, the linen cloth. So he went away, amazed at what had happened. So after these angels tell the women that Jesus have, has risen, they come back to the disciples, they head back from the tomb, and they head first to the remaining eleven, and then to everyone else. And Luke makes sure to remind us of exactly who is doing the storytelling. Firstly, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, probably uh, James, uh, Jesus' own mother, and, and some other women. All of them were women. Now, in the culture of the day, women were not considered to be a good and reliable uh, witness in court. If you wanted to prove something in court, then you would not have women carry that message. And you especially wouldn't put the truth of the resurrection story into the mouth of someone like Mary Magdalene, a woman of ill repute, the Bible calls her. A woman who had been demon-possessed. It's almost as if the Gospel writers go out of their way to try and discredit their own message. Why would they choose such unreliable witnesses in the culture of the day? Why wouldn't they first and foremost tell us that the disciples saw Jesus, because they ultimately did actually see Jesus face to face. Why choose this story of the women when this other option of the disciples' own testimony would have been far more convincing for the people of the day? Why didn't they do that? The answer is simple, really, because that's not what happened. They simply wrote down what actually happened. God, in His wisdom and with the irony of the divine, actually helps prove uh, that what is written down is the truth, right? Actually happened. The Gospel writers aren't dumb, they're not stupid, but that's what actually happened. And because they chose to include this story from these unreliable witnesses, it actually proves the point. We can trust their writings. If they had wanted to make up the story of Jesus' resurrection, they could have chosen better witnesses. They would not have invited other people to come and investigate the truth for themselves. Uh, the writer Luke, later in the book of Acts, tells us that Jesus also appeared to 500 other people, many of whom are still alive. So he's basically saying, don't just take my word for it. You can go and ask anyone. Check it out for yourself. I simply wrote down what happened here. And so we can trust that Jesus rose from the dead. We can trust that the, the disciples genuinely, truly believed it and that what we have in the Bible is the account of what actually happened. And yet, friends, this is exactly what we are called to do. We are to be like these women and to give an account of what Jesus has done. Luke structures the last chapter in, in, this, um, in his gospel in a way that talks about how people uh, are bewildered, then they meet Jesus, then they tell. These women are the first of the three of those stories. They are bewildered, then they meet Jesus, then they tell. 
Jesus' resurrection calls us to that same kind of pattern. We come, we hear the gospel story, perhaps we are bewildered by it, we meet Christ, and if we have Jesus in our hearts, then we are to tell, to witness to His glory. You see, when you come to know Jesus, you cannot help but change. You are a fundamentally different person. A person who through their life and through their voice and through their actions bears witness to the resurrection. When you receive the new life that Jesus offers, when you accept the grace of God, uh, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you cannot help but change. In the um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there is this part of, this is obviously a story, uh, but it is, if you understand the story, you know that even though it's a children's book, it's kind of an allegory for the life uh, of Jesus. Aslan the lion is meant to pre- uh, represent Jesus. Uh, and so the story goes that Edmund, one of the children in the book, betrays Aslan the lion. And he finds himself in the witch's co- uh, castle. And in this courtyard, there are these statues. They are people who are given into their sinful desires, whatever they may be. So each person was tempted to sin in a different way and they lost their life and they end up as these stone statues. They become these dead, stone-hearted beings who stand in the courtyard as these lifelike statues. And so eventually Aslan dies in Edmund's place. He dies for him and then he is resurrected. But what happens after that is what I, what I think is very helpful for our understanding this morning. So he goes about resurrecting all of these other statues in the witch's castle. He, he breathes life into each statue. And then at one particular point, Aslan breathes life into another lion creature. And we read the description like this, um, and I quote, I expect you've seen someone who has put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up against a grate, uh, in a grate against an unlit fire. For a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone line looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back. Then it spread. Then the colour seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. And then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane. And all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened his great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his, head lo- leg, his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and he scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking around him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. You see, friends, when we come to believe in Jesus, when we trust in Him, perhaps for the first time, we are like that lion whose heart is replaced with a heart of flesh. As if we are waking up from a spiritual death and sleep and having caught sight of Jesus, we cannot help but go bounding after Him in delight for what He has done for us. And there is an invitation here for us to do the same. You see, the resurrection matters because it is the proof, it is the guarantee 
of that kind of life that Christ breathes into us as we receive him. And friends, it is my dearest hope that if you find yourself here today with a heart of stone, like those statues in the courtyard, that you will turn to Christ, that you will trust in him, that you will see his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb uh, and accept that as a free gift where even your sins can be forgiven. Because when you do that, he will breathe new life into you. He will melt your stony heart. He will change the course of your life. And he will give you hope that no matter what happens in this life, your eternal life is secure. That you too join the crop of which Jesus is the first fruits. And if you are already a believer here today, then this is an invitation for you to do what these women did to run and to tell to tell of what you have found in Christ Jesus, what, you, what life you have discovered, and to make it known to all of those around you. Because as a believer, you were put to death on the cross. You were raised to life with him on Resurrection Sunday, and you now live forevermore, and one day you will reign with him. And if this is who you are, then how can you not share that with those around you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we celebrate uh, Resurrection Sunday, the day when you proved that death could not hold you, that the work you had done on the cross was, uh, was effective and actually came to bring us new life. Lord, thank you that when we trust in you, we too were put to death. Our old selves were put to death with you on the cross and we have been given a new life. And one day, Lord, that, will, that process will be complete. Lord, we look forward to that. We thank you that one day we too will have these resurrection bodies as a, um, as a crop of the first fruits of which you are uh, assigned. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to live a life that truly bears witness to what you have done for us. Help us to share the truth of our love for you in everything we do. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.